Father God, just thank you so much for bringing us here this morning, Lord, and we pray that we can just keep singing these praises throughout this week, throughout our lives, Lord, that we are overwhelmed by your love, by your grace, and your mercy, Lord. And just be with this morning, and thank you for your salvation. In your name, amen. You can be seated. I'd like to start out by asking Josh and Laura Krim to come up here for a minute. And I'm going to stand up on the step here because then I won't, I won't look quite so short. <laughs> Works when I'm standing by myself but next to these guys. Uh, Josh and Laura, how long have you been coming to Creekside now? Um, it's been about a year and a half. About a year and a half. And they've been serving faithfully with the Sunday School lately, um, so you haven't seen them around maybe as much <laughs> in the service. But this Friday they're moving up to St. Paul, Minneapolis. He's had a, He's been transferred by 3M up there, which is... Um, evidently God's hand in leading, but we're certainly going to miss you here. I just wanted to read one verse before we pray for you from Paul's, one of his uh, farewell talks as he went through a change in periods of life to the Ephesians. He said, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So we're going to miss you guys, um, but we're thankful we'll see you back visiting frequently and and also that you're going with God and his uh, word so let's just commit them to to him father we give thanks for Josh and Laura and we just pray that you would bless them as they step into the next phase of their life and just go with them and we thank you for them and and just commit them to you and to the word of your grace in Jesus name amen Okay, so this morning I'm going to take a few minutes, kind of a interruption in our regular programming, I guess. Uh, Alan will come up in a bit to talk to us from Mark, but um, I wanted to talk for a minute about unity. And if, if you take a look at the next slide here, uh, I don't know if you can read that, but in that second box to the left in that middle frame, unity shows up there. And it's something that we believe is important and necessary if we're going to uh, bring people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. So I just want to take a few minutes to uh, consider this subject. So uh, first of all, why, why should we care about unity? You know, there's a, I heard a story, you, you guys can judge whether it's true or not, but there was a man that was on a boat and it, it sunk and he managed to float along in the ocean until he hit this island that was uninhabited. But uh, there was plenty of natural resources there, miraculously. So he, you know, he proceeded to leave, leave a sign on the beach that said, help. And then he, he kind of settled in while he waited for help. So you know, a year or so passed by, and a low-flying airplane saw this sign that said, help. So they sent the Coast Guard in. And when the Coast Guard got there, they came up and they saw this little village and this man came out to meet him and they said are are you here alone he said yeah nobody else lives on this island he said well this is interesting this little village what what's this building here well that's my house okay so what about the one across the street well that's my office that's where i work okay so this one next to your house that's my church oh good you got a church that then what's this other building here? So, well, that's the church I used to go to. (laughs) 
So it's, it's kind of uh, a little bit humorous, but it kind of highlights the, the fact that sometimes we have trouble in church, don't we? And, and unity doesn't necessarily come naturally. So the question is, why do we care? And I'm not going to give an exhaustive list, but I've, I've put three reasons up here. The first reason is that Jesus cares. So from his prayer to his father that we have in John 17, he says, my prayer is not for them alone, and he's referring to his 12 disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, as you are in me, and I am in you. So Jesus is looking forward to the cross here, and he prays for us. He prays for us that we would be one, just like he and his father are one. So that's a, a good reason to care about unity because Jesus cared enough about unity to pray for us on this matter 2,000 years ago. Second, it's pleasant to God. And so we can read Psalm 133. It says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It's as if the Lord, uh, it's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. So if we envision this, maybe it's not all that attractive to think about oil running down somebody's head and through his beard and all over his clothes, but most likely it was a, a perfumed oil. And so, you know, if you think about that, from Aaron's perspective of having this perfumed oil through his hair and his beard on his clothes, everywhere he went, he would have this pleasant aroma with him. And that's how God views unity among his people. And so that, that's another reason that we desire to have that unity. Yeah, I was thinking in contrast, we had, uh, if you've been to our house our deck is up over our garage and I'd been hearing noises of mice living in there so I thought there was a, a good solution for that would be some rat poisoning so sure enough I put it out it was eaten within a couple days and I thought problem solved <laughs> four or five days later the house starts smelling like um, rotting mice and we couldn't find the mice, but they were somewhere in the floor joists or in the walls, wherever they decided to come into the house to die. And it, that infused the whole house with this bitter smell for a long time, maybe even still. <laughs> <laughs> so not, not the best plan for getting rid of mice, but you know that's a contrast. A little bit of poison, even outside the walls of the house, brought this unpleasant aroma. It's the, same with unity, right? A little gossip, a little complaining. might not even be while we're at church together, but it, it can bring this smell, <laughs> a spiritual smell that's not pleasant, contrasted to unity, which is a pleasant smell. So finally, it tells the world that God loves them and sent Jesus. So from that same prayer of Jesus, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So sometimes we might think of 
what goes on inside the church is one thing, but we can go out and preach the gospel. We can have outreach and reach the world for Jesus. Well, Jesus himself states this in his prayer that as we go on together in unity, that's a testimony to this world. It's a supernatural thing for people as diverse as the church of God to come together and enjoy something in common and focus on that in common, which is the Lord Jesus himself. So um, what is unity? And we'll uh, just spend a couple minutes talking about that. Uh, do we have to agree about everything? <laughs> that seems impossible, right? And, and for now, maybe it is impossible. But I, I want you going to do a little participation right now, but you don't have to raise your hand or talk or anything. You can do it in your chair. If you could just close your eyes a minute, then envision uh, a sheet of paper, a notebook in front of you, and write down in your mind's eye some things that bother you about church. And it doesn't have to be Creekside, um, but just, just write down a few things, and uh, you can stop there. We don't want to dwell on the negative. I think some of you were on your third or fourth sheet, maybe. <laughs> but there's things you can open your eyes again. We'll, we'll come back to that sheet of paper, hopefully remember enough of it to, to come back in a, a minute or two. Um, there are, you know, a number of things that naturally might bother us in church, but what is unity? Said, we'll quote from Paul, the apostle here. It says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of others. So it's not so much about, well, we, we all agree on this doctrine, we all agree on, on that doctrine. It's more about the fact that we love each other equally and that we have a, a spirit of humility and that we all have that spirit of humility and that we are less interested about what I want, what I'm interested in, and why I want to come to church than we are about what, what are the needs that I'm going to come across when I get to church. What do other people need that I'm with? And as we pursue those things, then that, that will result in the kind of unity that we're talking about here. So as I uh, thought about that a, a picture, and I don't know if you can see that very well or not, but um, I drew a little picture that to me kind of illustrates this, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but there's two qualities that I think unity in the church looks like. One is building up. Okay, so as we build each other up, we prepare each other for the work of the gospel. And the other is that we're fighting out. And so Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. So we ought to be attacking those gates of hell, right? With the gospel. And that's part of our testimony. And uh, God created us for conflict. And that seems a little strange. If you're a conflict avoider like myself, you, you don't really like that idea, but somebody pointed that out a couple of weeks ago to me. God put man in the Garden of Eden, and there were two things in there that he was going to have to do battle with. One was this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to not eat that. The other was 
we find out later that Satan himself was there. And so there was a need for battle right from the beginning, even before men sinned. And when we see Eve come in, and we see Eve, she's doing battle with Satan, right? <clears throat> and so she's arguing with him a little bit, but she's starting to lose the battle. And we find out later that Adam was right by our side. But Adam let Eve fight that battle by herself. He didn't step up and say, she's right. She's quoting God. And God said, we're not to eat of that, and we're not going to eat of that. But since she was alone in that fight, she took the fruit. And so Adam did too. God created us for unity in conflict. So unity is not just not arguing or getting along okay, but it's, it's fighting out. It's fighting against our true enemy, the devil, and the influence that he wants to have in our life and the influence that he has in the world. And so as we build one another up and we fight out, there's an, there is an influence on the world and the, the benefit to the world around us. And so let's just take a quick look at the opposite of that picture. And so it says, I guess I got it cut off there, it's disunity in the church. It looks more like fighting in and rotting out. So there's that concept of rotting again. Um, but Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So part of our influence of salt in this world is our love toward one another, our unity toward one another, and our building one another up. But if that's gone, that influence is just taken right out of the world. And the world starts... The devil starts having an influence on the church, and things inside the church start looking a lot like things out in the world. There's, uh, you know, the gossip, the arguing, the fighting, and, and that concept of the, the one body that was created by the Holy Spirit fades into the background. So, not to dwell a lot on what disunity looks like, but it, it really is kind of a a flip side picture of that, of the blessing that we can be in the world. So finally, Alan's going to come up here and he's going to talk from Mark about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And, and there's, there's one other thing I want to leave you with on the, with regard to unity. And this is from John chapter 11. As high priest that year, Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and to make them one. So one of the reasons Jesus died was to bring his people together in one. So we know he died for our sins, and we, we are forever grateful for that sacrifice. But as we consider the cross this week and next week and throughout the year, don't forget that not only did Jesus die to pay the debt of my sins and your sins, he died to gather us all together in one. And that is a, a great thing to think about, that we can bring joy to the heart of Jesus, that we can be like that pleasant aroma to Jesus, our great high priest, as we work together, as we fight our common enemy together, as we build one another up, 
in the church. So those, that's just a, a few thoughts that I wanted to share this morning. Um, I know we didn't, that's certainly not exhaustive, but hopefully can inspire us to, to unity and to building one another up and to expressing that love to one another. Alan? Thanks, Bob. As we transition here, uh, take, pull out your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 15. And we finally reached the climax of Mark's gospel. And in today and in the following two weeks, we get to see how all the threads and themes and messages of this book kind of crystallize in this one horrific scene. And I, I can't help but feel like this, this text is, a, is a holy ground. Um, and so before we read it together, let's just pray. Let's ask God to give us tender hearts and uh, a spirit to really behold Jesus. Father, we confess that we are people of distraction. We are people with calloused hearts sometimes to you. Um, Lord, as we, as we look at Jesus, as we look at his death on the cross, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart so that we could really see you and be changed by what we see. We thank you in Jesus' precious name, amen. So if you want to read along with me or, or if you just want to close your eyes and, and listen, but we're going to start in Mark 15, verse 16. And Jesus has just been wrongly convicted and we, we went through all the, the steps of the trial and now we're, we're picking this up and Jesus has been sentenced to die. Verse 16, it says, The soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. The battalion was about 600 soldiers. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked them, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. 
Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And you know, this is the most important, momentous event in human history. And it's amazing to me that Mark, in just about 20 verses or so, this week and next week, goes from Jesus being led from the trial to breathing his last. And yet every one of these verses is so packed with meaning we could spend weeks on it. Uh, but in the spirit of, of what Mark wrote and, and the simplicity, uh, I'm not going to say much today. I have three thoughts to hopefully help us reflect on what our, what our Savior did for us. The king on the cross. The first thing I want us, want us to see is the king's mockery. Now, there was a great British preacher named C.H. Spurgeon. He lived in England in the 19th century. And he, he made this observation. He said, the, greatest, the greater the power, the greater the authority that someone has, the greater the offense it is for them to be insulted. Now, we live in a very egalitarian society. We don't live in a country with, with royalty or kings. But we all have people that are in authority in our life. And so when you think about the way that you speak when you're with a teacher or with a boss, you're more careful with your words. Uh, you don't want to give offense. You don't want to say the wrong thing. But put yourself back maybe into another time period. I, I, I'm not going to say the name of the show, but there's a certain program on PBS that I, I watch sometimes on Sunday nights. And it's... a it's interesting because there's all these different levels and class dynamics and just the littlest offense or the littlest word misplaced is, is this big deal. Uh, but, you know, imagine that the, the Queen of England invited you to visit her. You were going to be a royal guest. You know, I think if it was me, I'd be really nervous. I would be kind of trying to brush up on all the etiquette, make sure I knew exactly what to do, exactly how to act, because I would, I would understand that even an unintentional slight, the wrong uh, you know, word, the wrong action at the wrong time, could cause great offense. Now, now think, about, think about the scene before us. Jesus. The title above the cross said Jesus of Nazareth. King of the Jews. Mark just report, records that, that last part, King of the Jews. And when Pilate had this title written up, he, he probably was a little pleased with himself because it's kind of a little, a little dig, a little insult that can be given to the Jews. Oh, look at Israel. Look at their king. This man dying on a cross. It was a put down. But when Jesus was standing before the high priest, in the first portion of his trials, the, the high priest asked him, he said, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You know, King of the Jews didn't go far enough. Jesus was quoting from an ancient prophecy from the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7, 13, this is the prophecy. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
There's the title, Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall be not destroyed. And just to get this picture that this, this figure, this son of man approaching the ancient of days and being given all dominion, all glory, a kingdom over all people that would never end. And this is the king. This is the king, not just the king of the Jews, but the king over all kings. And just to consider the way that he was mocked. Listen to this again and let this shock you. Verse 17, they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. Hear the sarcasm and the biting commentary, these cruel soldiers. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. He was mocked in his office as a king. He was also mocked in his office as a prophet. During the trial, it says they covered his face and they struck him and they said, prophesy. Another gospel said, tell us who hit you. He was mocked as a prophet. And again, as he hung on the cross, said in verse 29, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And we know Jesus said, destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and I will rebuild it in three days. He also prophesied that the temple of of Jerusalem would be destroyed. And they took this, this famous statement of Jesus and they threw it in his face. What kind of prophet are you? hanging on a cross, dying. And he was mocked as a priest. In verse 31, it says, The chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Oh, look at how he healed others. Look at how he, he ministered to the lost. You know, a priest was, was a go-between between man and God. And these priests disdained him and said he saved others he cannot save himself he was mocked in all of his aspects of his person first peter 2:23 though this is an amazing verse just listen to this when he was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And think how we respond to an insult or an affront. And then look at Jesus. Next, look at the king's suffering. You know, and it amazes me when I read this section how reserved Mark is. In verse 24, he says, And they crucified him. And they crucified him. What an understatement. You know, there was an article in The Guardian that talked about how does crucifixion kill? And here's just a short excerpt. It says, The weight of the body pulling down on the arms makes breathing extremely difficult. 
says Jeremy Ward, a physiologist at King's College, London. In addition, the heart and lungs would stop working as blood drained through wounds. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians in 300 to 400 BC and developed during Roman times into a punishment for the most serious of criminals. The upright wooden cross was the most common technique, and the time victims took to die would depend on how they were crucified. And, I mean, we can become kind of just numb to this fact, and, uh, you know, filmmakers have tried to portray the horror and the suffering, and and it's hard to watch. Um, But we need to look at Jesus, look at him and his suffering, And in verse 23, it says, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. You know, this would have been a drink they offered to kind of dull the pain, to to make the, the torture more bearable. And Jesus refused it. And remember when he prayed in the garden, he he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup, there's a cup of judgment, let it pass from me, but not what I will, but what thy will. And he would not do anything to lessen the penalty, to lessen the pain. He was determined to absorb the full cup of the wrath of God. And why? Why did he do this? Why did he endure this this physical uh, torment and suffering? And I I just think the, the clearest, the simplest explanation was written 700 years before Jesus came and It's from Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, spitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. The wounds, the blood, the torment that he felt. He did it for us. He and he his body was taking the penalty, taking the judgment that our sin deserved. In 1 Peter 2.24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And when we see Jesus bearing our sin in his body, it should change us. It should help us say, I want to die to sin. And I want to live to righteousness. That's why we look at the cross. We want to be changed. We, we want to see this man giving such a price so that we could be, could be pardoned from our sin. The last thing I want us to see is the king's nakedness. You know, one of the essential marks of royalty was the king's robe. It, it, it bestowed kind of an honor. It, be, it, was, it would have been made of lavish materials, um, jewels encrusted. If you saw, if you came into the presence of a king, you would be amazed. And, and everything around the king was, was designed to produce that reaction. And yet, Jesus, look at this progression, that they gave him a, a, a purple robe to, to mock him. Then they stripped him and put his own clothes on him. And then finally, as he hung on the cross, he was naked while they played games for his garments. So they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. 
And I love this quote. Uh, it's from a, a Christian author named Nancy Guthrie. I'm going to read it before I give thanks for the, the bread and the, and the juice. Listen to this. Adam and Eve faced temptation about a tree in a bright, sunny garden, a paradise with no pressure. But Christ faced temptation about a tree in a dark garden, a garden given the name that meant oil press. And certainly he felt squeezed like an olive in a press on that dark night to the point that his sweat was like drops of blood. If Adam and Eve obeyed God about the tree, they would live. If Jesus obeyed God about the tree, he would die. Jesus obeyed, and through his obedience, he gained for us far more than Adam lost for us through his disobedience. Adam lost for us the beautiful, naked and not ashamed of the garden. Christ hung on the cross naked and full of shame. And it wasn't his own shame. It was your shame and my shame. He endured the cross, despising the shame, as Hebrews 12.2 said, so that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's Romans 10.11. Imagine the greatest shame that you experienced in your life. Poured out. Poured out on Jesus on the cross. You know, if you have never seen Jesus as a man who suffered for your sin, today is, is that time. If you will confess to him that he paid the price for your sin, you can be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, Jesus endured mockery from sinful men so that we could receive the praise of the Father. Jesus wore the crown of thorns so that someday we can wear a crown of glory. Jesus was condemned by the world's authorities so that we could be accepted by the cosmic authority. Father, may we see Jesus crucified for us, bearing our sins in his body on the tree. Thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you for this bread and this cup, simple reminders. We can take week after week to proclaim his death, to remember what he did for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Bye.